us again. We want to welcome you uh, as you're here worshiping with us. We're glad you could be our guest today, or maybe uh, you've been here a couple weeks and haven't had a chance to get connected. As John was saying earlier, we would love to connect with you after service and get to know you a little bit and how our church could be a blessing in your life. Um, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1 this morning. Mark chapter 1. As you turn in there, you'll notice uh, we've been in a series in Ephesians, but we're taking a break today from that series. We'll pick up, and I think the next four or five weeks we'll finish up the book of Ephesians, but uh, this is my last Sunday preaching for three months. Amen, Amen somebody. Amen. So um, we announced earlier this year uh, during Vision Sunday that I'm going on sabbatical for three months, and this is the last Sunday until August 1st uh, when I'll be back. So uh, I wanted to take a little break from our series and give some context for the themes that surround a sabbatical and speak to us as a church and also a little bit about what will be happening and kind of how that works. So uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1 today, looking at verses 35 through 39, 35 through 39. If you're there, say amen. Hear the reading of God's word, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I want to tag our text today, the ministry of absence. The ministry of absence. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the God who speaks. And it's with your words that you create. It's with your words that you show forth your power and your majesty and Everything that we see is created from your words being spoken. And so, God, we pray for your creation to continue today through your word in our hearts, that you would create in us a new heart. You would create in us new life, new love for you, that your word would go forth in our souls and transform us. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So after a brief stint in second place, the Atlanta airport is back on top. Now, that is as the busiest airport in the entire world, the Atlanta airport. This is a title that it held for 20 years, 20 years. And then I think it was an airport in China somewhere that dethroned the, the Atlanta airport for just one year, and now it's back on top. And it's fascinating to think about the amount of people that actually go through the Atlanta airport. Someone said it's somewhere around 110 million people, million people went through the airport in 2019, in one year. 110 million people, that's a third of our country's population, went through a single airport. And so a couple years ago, I found myself in the Atlanta airport. We were flying from one place to another, stopped in Atlanta for a connecting flight, and we find out as we're landing that our connecting flight changed to another gate. 
and this gate was going to be all the way across the other side of the airport, and we had 20 minutes to get there, or we were going to miss our flight. And so we do what you have to do, right? You gather up all your luggage, and you run as fast as you can to try to get to the other side of the world's busiest airport. And so we're running through the airport, bumping into all these people, trying to apologize as we're making our way. And the only reason we made it is those little moving walkways. You know what I'm talking about? Have you seen those at the airport or other places with lots of people? These little moving walkways, well, they're, I think, designed to just kind of relax a little bit. Like, you're tired because you've been walking, and so you can just stand. And when you stand, it makes you move at the pace that you would normally walk. And what we were doing was running on the moving walkway. And so where, where we would have been walking at maybe four miles an hour or something, we're running, I don't know, 10 miles an hour. We're just running as fast as we can down these walkways, faster than any person should be running. And we're bumping into even more people, dropping stuff. But we made it because of the moving walkway. The moving walkway made it possible. But to live your life at that pace would be unsustainable, right? I mean, if you lived your whole life on the moving walkway, you would never rest. And yet here's what you and I struggle with, is living our life on this constantly going, even when you try to stop and stand still, somehow you're still going. Somehow you can't seem to stop. I mean, that that happens in my life. I'm sure it happens in your life in all kinds of areas, right? It's the kind of thing that can happen at your job. It's the kind of thing that can happen with your kids. You're just going, going, going from one event to the next event to the next event. And you're trying to let your kids have all these wonderful experiences in life. But you look back and you're like, man, we've had six nights this week. We're doing something. Or maybe it's, it's at your job, you know, you're putting in hour after hour because you're hoping you can get that promotion. You're hoping you can do this. And what you thought was going to be a season turned into one year, two years, 10 years, and you haven't been able to stop. I mean, it's one thing if it's a season, right? It's one thing if you've decided, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go hard for this time and I'm going to be busy because I know on the other end it's going to be worth it. But what happens if that turns into your whole life? What, what does that do to your soul? In a word, it's violence violence towards your soul. There's a Japanese theologian uh, by the name of Kosuke Koyama, and he wrote this great book. Just the title alone is worth the book. He he called his book Three Mile an Hour God. The Three Mile an Hour God. And, And this is what he says about this idea of our pace in life. He says this. He says, love has its pace. It is a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice it or not, at three miles an hour. It's the speed that we walk, and therefore the speed that the love of God walks. I love that because the the quote I'm giving you is, is coming in the context of a discussion that he's having about the reality that God came to be with us in the person of Jesus and he literally walked among us. He walked. God in human form, walking and strolling along in life with no hurry, 
He's got this sense that just like in the Garden of Eden where God is walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, God is in no rush, no hurry, just walking three miles an hour, slowly. And he says it's at that pace that, that God meets you because that, that is the pace at which God moves. Now, he's not saying you know, literally that God's kind of moving along at three miles an hour. He, he's using this image to say this, this is the pace in which God tends to work in our lives. And so what does it look like to go from this pace of always on a moving walkway where we're running and rushing and going from one thing to the next to slowing down to be with God? That's what I want to look at today. And I want to make some applications first to us as a whole, as a church. And then I want to look at the sabbatical and this concept of a sabbatical and make some, some applications and implications there from this text. So Let's look at that today, uh, this question, how do we slow down to be with God? It begins with the strength of solitude. If you're taking notes, this is the first point, the strength of solitude. Look with me at verse 35 to jump in. It says this, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Now this this is fascinating because this is the morning after Jesus had a really big uh, ministry outreach, if you want to call it that. I mean, Jesus was out in the community preaching and teaching and healing people, and word got out and spread so fast. If you go up to verse 33, it says that the whole town came out. The whole town was at their door waiting to get a healing from Jesus. I mean, could you imagine the stress if every single person in your town came to your house? and said, I want to get something from you? I mean, Jesus is overwhelmed. Jesus is exhausted. This is a long day of helping people and being there for people. He's very present. But then the very next day, you would think that Jesus would get up and sleep in, you know, have a little brunch, watch a little ESPN. I don't know what. Take it easy, right? No, Jesus gets up early in the morning. It says he gets up before the sun gets up. And he goes out to a desolate place. He goes out to the Greek word eremos, which means a desert or a wilderness. And, and metaphorically, it was used by the prophets to mean this, this place of, of quiet rest. This place where you're alone with God. And, and Luke 5 tells us that this is Jesus' go-to place. Luke 5 says that Jesus often withdrew, often withdrew to desolate places to pray. This is where Jesus would go on a regular basis. And, and what's interesting is Jesus had just come from this place. If you go earlier in Mark chapter 1, Jesus had spent 40 days in the Eremos. You might remember it as his temptation, right? Jesus goes out in the wilderness, and while he's out there, uh, he's tempted by Satan. And, and because he's tempted by Satan, you, you often think, and I thought this for many years, that that uh, he's, he's being tempted because Satan is trying to pounce on his weakness. Satan is trying to meet him right where he's, he's tired and he's hungry and he's weak. And so that's when Satan comes to get him, right? I mean, that's how it often works, right? In our life, Satan comes at those times. But if you look at the text closely, it actually says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. In other words, uh, Jesus, wasn't being, it, Jesus wasn't in the wilderness because he was weak. Jesus was in the wilderness because the Spirit led him in the wilderness to find strength. 
Because the Spirit knew that that Jesus was about to be tempted in this incredible way by Satan, and so where he would find strength would be in the wilderness. It would be in the desert, in the Aramas. The, The wilderness is not the place of weakness. It's the place of strength. And Jesus was at his best in the desert. See, solitude, listen, solitude is the place of spiritual strength. It's the place that we go for spiritual strength. If you go to uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, you have the story of Elijah, and Elijah's on the run. If you you go back and you read the story, you find out that Elijah has a hit on his life. The the queen Jezebel, she uh, finds out that Elijah said all these things that she's upset about, and so she declares that she is going to kill him in the next 24 hours. And so there's this hit out on, on Elijah's life, and he runs out into the wilderness, out into the Aramas. And so he's out in the desert, he's all by himself, and, and if you know the story, Elijah is kind of losing his mind. He, he's stressed, he's despairing, he's depressed, and, and he cries out to God. And he says to God, you, you might as well just kill me, just let me die, because I'm tired of this life. That's the place that Elijah was. And as he's crying out to God and he's sharing his grief and his loss and, and the pain it is that he's going through, God shows up to Elijah in the strangest, most surprising way. If you know the story, he, he, uh, he first he hears this, this wind, this, this rushing wind that, that kind of goes through the mountains and cuts through the mountains, and he thinks that God is going to show up in the winds, and he doesn't show up in the winds. And then he thinks that God is going to show up in this earthquake, this earthquake that shakes the whole area. He thinks that must be God speaking. Now he's going to show up. And God wasn't in the earthquake either. And then he thinks, oh, well, maybe he's going to show up in this fire. There's this great fire that that erupts. God wasn't in the fire either. And then, surprisingly, he hears this small whisper. I love how the King James says it. It's this still, small voice. So quiet, you you could almost miss it. And that's where God shows up. And he speaks to Elijah, and he gives him hope and comfort that he hasn't abandoned him in the wilderness. But it wasn't, listen, it wasn't in the busy noise. It was in the slow silence. It was in the slow silence that that Elijah encountered God where he was most desperate to have him. See, what I want to say to you is today is, is we all need this encounter with the living God, right? We all need it, an encounter with God where, where we know God has shown up in our life. God has come where we are stressed, where God, God has come where we are uh, struggling in sin. God has come where we're grieving and lamenting. God has come where, wherever the pain and misery and the sin is in our life, where, where we are in need, God is showing up. But how? How does it happen? How, how do we have this encounter with God? It's not going to happen without silence and solitude. It's not going to happen unless we have this time away from the noise. See, there's two aspects to silence. There's external and there's internal. The the external is pretty straightforward, right? It's just external noise. It's all the noise in your life. It's 
It's the kids that are screaming. It's the TV that's on in the background. It's the headphones that you've got in. It's the, the job that's sending emails nonstop. It's, it's all the things that are happening in your life that are just this external noise that's coming towards you. And to try to turn it off is a challenge. I mean, if you can go hide in the bathroom for 10 minutes and just block out the rest of the world, whatever you got to do, but you have to block out the external noise. And then what happens is the silence comes and it changes things. Uh, the great African theologian Augustine, St. Augustine, as you may know him, he said this, he said, entering silence is like entering joy. Entering silence is like entering joy. And what he's saying is what church uh, theologians have said throughout all history, that it's this, this encouragement to befriend silence, to let silence be something that you seek and pursue because it's in the silence that you can finally get away from the noise and you can just be with God. Just you and your soul with God. So the question is, what... Why don't we do that more? Why is that so hard to do? Could it be that we use external noise to drown out all the internal noise? Could it be that if we turn off all the stuff out there for just 5, 10, 30 minutes, whatever it may be, could it be that we're afraid that all the other things that are internally noisy are going to overwhelm us. See, I'm talking about the internal noise that, that we have a hard time shutting up. It, it's the constant push within us that I have to prove myself. I have to make sure other people know that I, I've accomplished something or, or I'm feeling this guilt and this shame that I just can't seem to get away from or I'm struggling with that relationship and the conflict that just keeps coming back and I'm running all these conversations through my head and I, I just want to distract myself from that. I want to do something that's, that'll keep me away from thinking about that. Right, Because you know, as I know, anytime you slow down, there's all of a sudden this rush of all the things that you've been putting off, all the things that you've been feeling but you haven't been dealing with. But it's in those moments that God is, is inviting you to listen, not just to what the noise is saying, but to what He's saying. It's in, it's in these moments that God's voice can speak louder than the voices of your guilt and shame. And so he calls us into this solitude, into this place where you can have spiritual strength, in this place where you can encounter his presence. Listen, solitude isn't isolation, right? Don't confuse them. Solitude is engagement. Isolation is where you try to escape, but solitude is an intentional way of engaging with God. You're, you're getting alone to be with him. Solitude is safety. Isolation is danger. Solitude is being alone with God and your soul, but isolation is just being alone. It's just you by yourself. In fact, solitude is ironically anything but being alone. We often feel the most connected with God when we can just be alone with Him and focus on Him. Where we can hear that still, small voice. It's that place of strength. That place of well-being. So how do we develop that rhythm? 
that this, this is what I want to look at and, and kind of speak to us about this issue uh, related to the sabbatical. So look at uh, the rhythm of solitude. This is the second point, the rhythm of solitude. Look at verse 36. Look at verse 36. I love this. It says, And Simon, also known as Peter, and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. I love this because, I mean, remember, uh, Jesus, he, he's disconnected from the folks, but he didn't tell anybody. He didn't have a vision Sunday and talk about it. He, he didn't make an announcement the week before. He, he didn't send it out in the newsletter. Jesus just disappeared. And no one knew where he went. No one knew what was going on. It was wonderful. He surprised everybody. John Mark Comer, who's a writer, he speaks about this. He paraphrases the, the response. He says this, Jesus, where have you been? You were amazing yesterday. Words got out. Vogue is calling for an interview. TMZ is hiding outside of Peter's house. Hashtag Jesus is trending on Twitter. We need you back here right now. Right? But Jesus, he... He didn't care. He gets away to be with God. And, and what you see in Jesus' life is this pattern, this rhythm of connection and disconnection, presence and absence. So you'll see Jesus at one point, he's present with the people and he's, he's in intimate conversations, talking just one-on-one -on -one with somebody. Like there's no time in the world. He's taking his time, he's present, he's, he's with them, and in the next moment he's gone. He's by himself with his father. And then the next moment, he's with 5,000 people, feeding the crowds and doing miracles and caring for people and healing people. He's doing all these things. And the next moment, he disappears again. He's out into the desolate place. And what you see is this pattern of presence and absence, presence and absence. And it's not because Jesus doesn't want to be with people. It's because Jesus knows if he's going to be with people, if he's going to be present and love them well, he needs to be with his father as well. And so it's his time with his father where he's absent from the people that actually fuels his love for the people. And that's a principle that applies to any of us, not just pastors, not just people in ministry, but if you're a parent or you're, you're uh, at your job or in your friendships, whatever it is, there's, there's this pattern that you see that it has to have both. But in particular, pastors and people in ministry struggle with this. There's a guy named Henry Nowen who he wrote about this struggle in ministry. He said, we ministers may have become so available that there's too much presence and too little absence. Too much of us and too little of God and His Spirit. He's the one who coined that phrase, the ministry of absence. Henry Nouwen says that what you need in ministry and what you need in any relationship is you need this balance of presence and absence. He says that that's because that's how love works. Love works with this, this rhythm of presence and absence, presence and absence, so I can be refueled to go forward and love the person that God has called me to love. It's how love works. So what does all this have to do with sabbatical? Well, a sabbatical, if, if you're wondering what a sabbatical is, uh, it is an extended season of solitude and Sabbath. That, that's what it is. You look throughout the scriptures and there's different provisions for sabbaticals, and we don't have time to get into all that, what it looks like uh, in, in Old Testament practice, but you see a principle of this extended period where you take time to just rest and be renewed in God. 
And it's out of that sabbatical, just like the weekly Sabbath, it's out of that that you have the the capacity and the love and the energy to be able to go forward to what God has called you to do. And so the sabbatical that we're talking about uh, for us is uh, it's a three-month sabbatical that our elders have decided way back in 2020, we started planning for a sabbatical that was going to happen in 2021. And then because of COVID continuing on, we postponed it to this year. And so this has been long in the works that our elders have been talking about and praying through and planning for. Uh, But the idea is that every seven to eight years that me and future pastors in our church would have uh, the opportunity to do a three-month sabbatical. And so it'll be a season for me and our family to be away to rest, to reflect, to pray, to to be alone with God, to be alone with each other, to have this time to renew our souls. And so that 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 is the the rhythm that we want to create in our church. And so it, it's this rhythm of love, right? The goal of any sabbatical, just like the goal of a weekly Sabbath, is that we would love better, that we would be people renewed by God's Spirit to go forth and to love the people that God has put in our life. And Uh, one of the things that I've been doing as we've been preparing for this is I've been talking to a lot of pastors who've been on sabbaticals and reading books about sabbaticals. And and I want to read to you just this quote from one of my favorite authors who writes about sabbaticals. His name is Eugene Peterson. And uh, at one point in his ministry life, he had a year-long sabbatical. I mean, I got to get one of those. I don't know when that happens. I think it was after his 30th year or something in his church. But a year, a year sabbatical, And so he writes about his reflections afterwards and the kinds of things that God taught him and and what he learned through that. And this is what he says. He says, A benefit that I had not counted on was a change in the congregation. They were refreshed and confident in a way that I had not observed before. One of the dangers of a long-term pastorate is the development of neurotic dependencies between pastor and people. I I had worried about that from time to time, For many people expressed excessive anxiety, anxiety that I would not return, anxiety that the church could not get along without me, anxiety that the life of faith and worship and trust that we had had worked so hard to develop would disintegrate in my absence. None of these fears was realized, not one, not even a little bit. The congregation, in fact, thrived. They found, get this, they found that they did not need me at all. I returned to a congregation confident in its maturity as a people of God. Amen. I mean, that's, that's my prayer for us. That's our elders' prayer for us, is, is that we would, as a congregation, be renewed in this, that we would be encouraged in this, not just me and my family, but the whole church, that this would be a place that, or a time that we would grow and thrive through the sabbatical. And so, real briefly, just three things that I think God can do using this sabbatical. Uh, Number one, sabbaticals protect us from a personality-driven church. A personality-driven church. I mean, we live in a consumeristic kind of personality-driven culture, and that has seeped into many churches, and we are not immune to that either. Even if the pastor's not cool, which is me. Like, you don't have to have a lot of Instagram followers to, to still have this sense that the pastor is the center of attention in the church. And it becomes all about the pastor's personality and charisma and all these things, and, and it's not about the person of Jesus. 
And sabbaticals help protect us against that. Because the sabbatical for an extended period of time shows you it's not about the pastor. It's not. And, and I'm glad that, that we want to, to work together and you want me to be your pastor and I want to be your pastor, but you don't need me to be your pastor. And this is what's amazing about the sabbatical. is It's going to show us that that's really true. It's really true that God, that this, this is God's church. It's his church. Number two, sabbaticals provide room for others to grow. What I mean by that is uh, because I'll be gone, there's going to be things that need to be done. And there's people in our church who are going to step up and help with those things. But there's also going to be people in our church who may see needs in our church and haven't been able to find their place. They haven't been able to find a place where they can serve or a way they can contribute or use their gifts. And you'll be surprised. There's going to be people in the next three months who say, you know what? I want to serve in that way. I want to help out in this way because I think God is calling me to, to play this part in our church. And, and God begins to use my absence for you to do things and for you to thrive in what God has called you to do. Sometimes God has to get the pastor out of the way literally, for y'all to do what he's called you to do. The next thing, number three, is to remind us that God holds all things together. One of the most comforting passages I've been praying through, uh, preparing for this, is from Colossians 1. Colossians 1, Paul says, And Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. In other words, Jesus was holding this church together before I became the pastor, before this church existed. Jesus is holding this church together now while I'm the pastor. Jesus is going to hold this church together 30 years from now when I'm not the pastor. Jesus will be holding his church together. That's how it works. This is his church. And so he's, he's calling us into trusting that, and it's in that trust that, that we're going to see God work in ways that we are going to be surprised. I'm really excited to see how he does that. I'm excited to see the ways that he grows me, how he grows us as a church, how he grows our leaders. It's going to be a blessing for us. But of course, in our solitude, whether it's mine for this season or yours in whatever season, uh, it can only have genuine hope if it's in the gospel. Amen? And so this third point I want to look at briefly before we close and go to communion is the, the, hope, of, uh, the hope of solitude. Look at verse 38. It says, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. I love this. Remember that Jesus has had these, uh, this search team after him, right? They're, they're looking for Jesus, trying to figure out where he went, because he didn't tell anybody where he went. He didn't tell him he was leaving. And so he just disappears. And now when they finally find him, you would think that Jesus would be apologetic. I mean, he hasn't been answering the phone. He hasn't been returning texts. He hasn't been even checking his email. And you would think he'd be apologetic, like, yeah, I'm sorry, I just got away and I needed some time. But no, Jesus completely shifts the conversation and he says, no. He says, that's not what we're going to do. I'm not going back to all those folks. We're going this way. And what Jesus is saying is he's coming out of his sense of, of time with his father with a greater sense of his mission. He says, this is the reason I've come out. The reason I've come out of heaven to come to you is that I might preach the gospel. 
And so he comes out of solitude with his father, grounded in his mission. He knew who he was, and he knew what he had come to do. He wasn't pulled away by the noise. He wasn't pulled away by all the needs that that were crashing in on him from these crowds. He was on a rescue mission. He was on a redemption mission. And so his solitude wasn't the end. It was the means to the end. He says, this is why I came out, that I might go forward not for my fame, not for my glory, not for attention and accolades, not for likes and comments, not for anything else, but I came out for you. I came out that I may preach the gospel. I came out that I might uh, come to love you and, and pursue you and, and redeem you, right? I mean, Jesus attends to us. He loves us so that he could redeem us. It's why he came out, that he might go towards us. A few years ago, there was a doctor by the name of Dr. Erwin Braverman. He was the director of medical residence at Yale Medical School. And uh, he was noticing as they were training residents in their residency program that many of them were losing the power of attention. They were living in this constant moving world like we do with technology and all these things happening, and, and they just couldn't keep their focus on things. And obviously, if you're going to be a doctor... That's not a good thing, because these, these doctors in training, they're, they're supposed to be paying careful attention to their patients so that they can know what the problem is and care for them well and have a good diagnosis so they can be healed, right? And so he's noticing this problem, and, and he realizes we got to do something different in our training, and so he comes up with this kind of out-of-the-box idea. The idea is they're going to take all of their students in the medical program to the University Art Museum and spend the day looking at paintings. And they take all these students to the art museum, and and they're all wondering, why are we doing this? What is this about? And he says, I want you to spend a few hours looking at this painting, and I want you to just write down everything you see, everything you notice. And I want you to take your time and observe. And after they did this practice multiple times, they noticed that actually their skills of paying attention got better and their diagnosis of patients increased dramatically. So much better at what they knew was happening and what they noticed and observed about the patients because they were able to slow down and be there. The doctor said this in his final report. He said, we are simply trying to slow down our students. The artwork is a means to better care for people, to slow down and to care. See, what they had gotten into was simply the, the pattern of love, that, that that's how love works, that love always works by slowing down to see and to, and to take it in and to move towards them, but, but to notice them, right? This is how Jesus' love towards us works. This is how the gospel works. Jesus slows down to come close to us to attend to us, to examine us, to be with us, to walk in our experiences, to listen to our hurts and worries, to heal us from our failures and sins, to watch over us in our trials and dangers. And like the students who are in the art museum, examining the artwork, Jesus comes close and he slows down to three miles an hour to walk with us, to attend to our condition that he might save us. And as Jesus comes close to us, what what he sees in us and what he notices and what he observes, he saves. It's in his perfect wisdom, in his perfect diagnosis, that he chooses the method of the cross. The cross that would cost him his life. The cross that would cost him his comfort. 
but it would be perfect because it was the cross that would give us a new heart. It would be the cross that would give us a new righteousness, give us an adoption into the family. It would be the cross that would give us new hope. It would be the cross that was the perfect care for sinners and suffering people like us. This is why he came out, that he might attend to us, that he might attend to us in his very presence, the redeeming love of our Savior, that we might love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, because he first loved us. His attending love is our only hope. His attending love is what redeems us. And so he says, it's better that I leave you because if I leave you, this is what Jesus told his disciples, if I leave you, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will live in you. So when Jesus himself says, I'm going to have a ministry of absence, it was for their good. It was for our good because his presence isn't just to be with us. It's to be in us literally, to be in us. Do you need his attending present love today? Jesus is inviting you to receive it. He's inviting all of us to receive it. The miracle of the gospel is that God would come near to us. He would move towards us where we might feel lost or uh, abandoned or distant from God or we're feeling silence or whatever it may be. Whatever that position is you find yourself in, God is saying, I'm moving towards you and you, you can experience that love. You can experience my presence if you'll slow down and turn towards me. And when you cry out to me, I'm, I'm right there, present with you, present with you at all times, because he never leaves us or forsakes us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that it's your experience of the absence of the Father on the cross that brings us into his presence. It's your ministry of absence as you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you felt the absence. You felt the distance. It was at that very moment that we were having our eternal presence established. And so what a beautiful thing to watch our Savior love us so well. And God, we pray that you would help us to love others in that same way. God, that we would get time away to be with you. Even if that's five, ten minutes a day. Even if that's just as we Sabbath weekly and get time to be with you and to be with your people and to renew our hearts and our souls. Whatever it may be, God, we pray that we would turn our hearts towards you and find a God who's been pursuing us intimately closely with great love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.